The CARES Act, enacted during the pandemic, let the government reimburse contractors for employees on paid leave, those who couldn't access federal work sites or work remotely. One company took the money, then later faced a demand from the Navy for a $4 million reimbursement. It gets ugly. Haynes Boone partner Zach Prince has details on this case. And Zach, tell us what happened and what went wrong. So this case is less about the CARES Act reimbursement and more about some of the Byzantine challenges of navigating a claim against the government, or in this case, a claim by the government against a contractor. So the claims against the government, as I'm sure many listeners are aware, are not like a claim against a ordinary party. And they're hoops that you've got to jump through. And if you don't jump through them, there are ramifications. One of those ramifications for a long time has been dismissing a case outright, even if the arguments are brought up years later, even after an appeal has already been filed to the federal circuit and come back, you could lose out of years of litigation costs because of some jurisdictional trap. Now, the federal circuit has moved away from that, and so is the Supreme Court, defining a lot of the requirements as procedural, not jurisdictional. That matters because a procedural trap is something that can be sprung on you at a very narrow window of time at the beginning of a case, not years later. So with that backdrop, it's I want to talk about this case here, which somewhat avoided that issue. PAE was performing this long-term cost-reimbursable contract for the Navy in the Bahamas operating the Atlantic Undersea Test and Evaluation Center. It's a deep water test facility for naval vessels, naval weapons. They do really interesting work there. PAE was the O&M operator. So at some point, and the facts of this are a little unclear from the case because it wasn't really at issue yet, PAE got some reimbursement from the Navy under the CARES Act. So that Section 3610 of the CARES Act gave contractors the ability to get compensation from agencies to reimburse employees who had to stay at home because their jobs couldn't be performed anywhere but on site and they couldn't be on site. So at some point in 2021, the Navy starts exchanging letters with PAE. They say, PAE, there's some issue with these amounts that you charged us. The issues are not entirely clear and they're starting to demand amounts back. This culminated in a March 2022 letter from the Navy with the title, Demand for Payment for Unallowable COVID Costs. Yeah, that's pretty uh, definitive sounding. It certainly sounds like it to me. I mean, they said demand a bunch of times in this letter. They demanded reimbursement of $4.3 million plus applicable indirect rates plus 2% fee with a breakdown included by CLIN and SLIN. So really specific. CLIN being contract line item and SLIN being? Contract subline item. Got it. Okay. So <laughs> sorry about that. Um, Chapter and the, verse, in other words. That's right. I mean, they said exactly. You build us using these contract pieces you know, in this way. We want it, that all back. And if you don't pay us back in 30 days, interest is going to start accruing. And it concluded with this invitation, PAE, if you disagree, respond to us, Right. And maybe we'll talk about a deferred payment plan. Deferred payment plan, of course, indicating that there is an amount owed and that we've already asserted that amount. So PAE appeals to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, considers this a contracting officer's final decision, which is one of those requisites for filing a claim. About a year goes by in this litigation, and the Navy suddenly says, actually, we're moving the, to dismiss this whole action because there was never a contracting officer's final decision. This deprives the board of jurisdiction. This wasn't a decision. This was just a letter. So, 
I have a hard time. That sounds like a pretty fine distinction. It does. And I have a hard time with this argument from the Navy. I mean, it doesn't pass the smell test in my view. But the tricky thing for everybody dealing with government contracts, claim, which is an important term in the Contract Disputes Act, isn't actually defined anywhere outside the FAR. So everybody's got to look to the FAR and what the FAR says it requires in order to give any meaning to this. Got it. In this case, the Navy's letter pretty clearly indicated that it was seeking reimbursement of specific amounts of unallowable COVID costs and it asserted requirements for interest that would accrue if PAE didn't pay. It doesn't strike me that there's a realistic question that this was a government claim, but the Navy made a few arguments. They said they were actually just inviting PAE to comment on their refusal to substantiate COVID costs. But I don't know. It didn't sound like a comment letter. It said, we demand $4.3 million. Sure. We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. And so there were questions about whether the amount was owed in the first place. And now there are more questions about the process of the demand and what the legal and FAR status of that demand was. Yeah, that's right. So the claim itself, I think, will ultimately get resolved There's going to be some litigation. The Navy actually withdrew the letter that it says wasn't a claim, although it said they're conducting a DCA audit and they're going to pursue these amounts anyway, which is why the board really didn't put much stock in that. They're not going to dismiss this thing that's then going to come right back because the Navy is still seeking it. What was their strategy in withdrawing the letter then and saying and and verbally saying we're still going to pursue it? You know, I'm, I'm really not sure about it. I think the Navy was trying to suggest that this wasn't a claim and so we don't have to follow the procedural requirements for a claim. So it's just a letter, you know, maybe it was jumping the gun. We're going to take it back. But really, we still want these amounts and we still have an issue with it. I don't know. It's a strange litigation strategy. So what can the company do to respond at this point? What's a good strategy if you're a contractor and you're demanded money? Well, we're pulling back the demand because it wasn't really a decision. So now we're pulling back the letter making the demand but we still want the money back. What the heck does that mean? I think I would have done the same thing PAE did. You get this letter, your lawyers look at it and they say, this is a contracting officer's final decision. And you want to go to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. You've got 90 days starting now. So go do it. You don't want to get stuck in a trap because you didn't construe something as a demand when it was. You could have, I guess, gone back to the Navy and said, please provide clarification. But they might have eaten up enough time giving you that clarification that you lose the chance to go to the board. So I think if you get to the board and the government says, actually, we're taking it back after a year of you wasting litigation costs, you do again what PAE did here, which is you say, board, don't dismiss this thing. It's still a live issue. It's just going to cause us to incur the same costs again, trying to resolve this dispute. We're going to be back where we are today in a year or two. So as a company, you need to keep it alive in the original form to keep procedures and timelines and deadlines intact, in other words. You do, because the government's just going to waste time. I mean, from my experience with claims against the Navy in particular, things can take a lot of time. And you've got outstanding amounts that are challenged or that are owed to you, and they want to go through a DCA audit, and then they want to go through another DCA audit. And years down the road, maybe you're just back at the board and nobody's memory is fresh anymore. All your people are gone and you've just got to come up with evidence based on scattered documentary records 
it's much better to resolve these issues when it's fresh on everybody's mind. Yes, because DCAA itself can be years behind in audits, and those audits don't exactly take place in 72 hours either. <laughs> no, they don't. They're doing a little better now than they had been, but they're still not exactly what I think most people consider timely. And as a company, you don't want that kind of eternal sword of Damocles over your head that someday, gosh, we got to cough up $4 million, $4.3 million. I mean, that's real money to a small contractor. It is. It's probably a little less impactful for a, a company of PAE size, but it's still $4.3 million is $4.3 million. And every couple of years, this thing pops up again, and then you have to get your lawyers fresh and your executives fresh, and that costs more than it would have if you'd just gone right on through it and gotten it resolved. So what is the current status of the whole claim and the counterclaim? So the board rightfully rejected all of the government's arguments about why this really wasn't a claim. I think those arguments were really silly on the Navy's part. And it said, you know, we found that there's a some certain, which is something you have to have to have a claim against the government or a claim by the government that you appeal from. They said it, it otherwise followed all the procedural requirements. So as a matter of fact, you are wrong, government. But what they failed to do, and I, I wish they had done, is follow on the heels of this recent Federal Circuit decision uh, in ECC International, where the Federal Circuit said requirements for claims that aren't coming from a statute are not jurisdictional. All of the things here with the FAR definition of claim are not jurisdictional. This matters, right? Jurisdictional is a big lawyer word, but it really does matter because it has an impact on when the Navy can bring it up as a defense. If it's jurisdictional, any time. The court has to bring it up on its own. Board has to bring it up on its own. If it hasn't, it could be years later. And this has happened where contractors get trapped. You spend millions of dollars in litigation fees. You've got a meritorious claim that you win. And then wait a minute, you failed some little jurisdictional problem. We're avoiding the whole thing from the outset. The Federal Circuit said, actually, a lot of these requirements are not jurisdictional. This is one of them, by the way, that all the issues the Navy was arguing here would have been one of them. The board should have said that. Instead, they just dropped the footnote and said it doesn't really matter that there's this Federal Circuit decision because in any case, you satisfied it. But that's not very helpful when you've sometimes got aggressive counsel on the other side that's going to assert any claim they can. No matter how late it is, you want to be able to say, look, we already have the board interpreting it this way, which is the right way. You're a year in. You can't bring up these arguments. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. I guess maybe they should hire you instead. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. 
Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed, and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And... What changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, Um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself, and in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path 
later in life. Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back, those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence. Because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration in the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles. 
and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who... I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker 
or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.